you're with us here this evening and you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. There'll be men coming up the aisle, and they'd love to get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along this evening. Ruth chapter 2, this evening as we make our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we kind of pick things up where, as we left off in our account last week, where Naomi, her name meaning pleasantness, meaning optimist and cup half full kind of person, has re-entered into the city of Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law Ruth, and she has declared to everyone because of the severity of her losses while in the land of Moab that she doesn't want to be called pleasantness anymore. She wants to be called Mara. She wants to be called bitter. Do you believe that the circumstances in this fallen world can become so great, the difficulty of them, that it can cause even a pleasantness, even the eternal optimist inside of us or with us, even the person that sees an empty glass half full can be embittered by life. I believe it. I believe it because of Naomi's life, and I believe it because of the difficulty of circumstances in people's lives in this fallen world all through the ages. This is not an easy world to live in. It just isn't. It's a very fallen place, and it is becoming more and more difficult place to live in as the Lord's return is approaching. One of the mistakes that Naomi makes here is because of the difficulty of her experiences, she assumes that God is actively working against her. And that's a temptation that we all have in the middle of a bitter season in life where things are going hard for us. It's interesting that in the original temptation of Satan, of Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the two great methodologies that he used against her, and he was successful on both uh, counts. The first thing he did was to, cause, to cast doubt upon the truthfulness of God's Word. And then the very next device he used against her was to attempt to get her to doubt the goodness of God in His commands and in His promises to her. And so she, she is falling for one of the oldest tricks in the book that the devil tries to use against us. And it's recorded in the Scriptures so that we can be aware of it in our lives this evening in case that same kind of thing is happening uh, to us. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now there was a relative of Naomi's husband, remember uh, Elimelech, her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. Elimelech's an interesting name. Elimelech, Elimelech. In the jungle, the mighty... <laughs> kind of right in there, isn't it? I'm sure it wasn't Elimelech, but Elimelech fits as good as whatever it was in a lot of years. And his name was Boaz. So we are introduced to a man by the name of Boaz now in the account. Ruth doesn't really know about him yet, and, uh, but we're going to learn a lot about him this evening. So... Boaz is introduced as a family member now 
of this uh, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean the heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And Naomi said to Ruth, Go, my daughter. So Naomi seeks permission, or Ruth seeks permission from Naomi to go and glean the fields that were being harvested at that time, and it was the barley uh, crop that would be followed later by the wheat crop. And, uh, the, and one of the things that probably drove her to want to go out and to glean the fields was hunger. Hunger will uh, cause a person to want to work, and that's the way that it was in the ancient world. And so they're hungry, they, they no doubt need food. And God had provided a law in the law of Moses for the stranger and the widow and for the fatherless, the powerless or the poor within uh, the nation of Israel uh, to be provided for through this thing called gleaning. And so the harvesters would go through their field, they would harvest their wheat or harvest their barley. They could only take one pass through the field and get all of the grain that they could. They couldn't make two or three or four passes and wipe out everything that was in the field. If they went through and they had orchards, they could make one pass through those orchards take all of the fruit that they could on the one pass, but anything they didn't get the first time that might have ripened a week later or two weeks later, that was to be left on the trees for the poor and uh, the vulnerable in the culture to come and be able to receive that as food. So it was kind of the social welfare program of the ancient world. It was a really beautiful balance of how God did it because he provided for them and he wanted to provide for them. He blessed the country enough that it would be able to take care of its poor. But the farmers were not told to take and harvest the grain and then deliver it to the poor. The poor had to go out into the fields and they had to gather what was left over. And there's something uh, for all of us, no matter who we are, where work is a good thing. It produces something important in our lives and uh, great character. And so there was food, but it had to be worked for. And one of the things we learn about Ruth here is she didn't expect life to hand her anything. And as we'll see, she was a very, very hard worker. And so then she left and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to this relative by the name of Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Well, in the natural it looked like, and it happened. But God is orchestrating the whole thing. How many of us, don't show your hands yet, how many of us, it wasn't until after we came to the Lord that we could look back and see how God had been drawing us for a very, very long time. How many of you had that sense once that happened? It's in it, and that's the way that it is. God's working here, and, and, uh, but sometimes it isn't until later that we see, oh, His fingerprints are all over uh, this whole uh, circumstance. And so she goes into that field, and now behold, Boaz came in from Bethlehem out into the fields where the barley's being harvested, and he said to the reapers, Get going, you scurvy dogs. Time is money. No, he said, the Lord be with you. And then they answered him, the Lord bless you. Can somebody get me a job application for this place? It's really fabulous. It tells us a lot about Boaz, who he was as a boss. Remember, this is a very, very dark, ungodly time in the history of the children of Israel 
And here you have people who are walking with God, walking openly in their testimony of their love for the Lord. And so this guy's got a love for God that he can't keep inside of himself and a joy of the Lord that he's got to, you know, communicate it to his workers when he shows up uh, in, in the field. And so he's... Uh, uh, just full of the Lord, and that's the kind of place I'd, I'd, I would want to work too. So the Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He noticed a, a new gleaner out into the field, and uh, probably weren't a lot of strangers in Bethlehem in those days. And so the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she came to us and she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And so he said, she's very polite, she's very humble, she asked for permission. And so she came and she's continued from morning until now, though she needed a little rest in the house. So she's a very, very uh, hard worker. And um, so they're doing the, she's coming in uh, and, and doing the gleaning. Boaz recognizes her. Now this is something else about Boaz. Because remember that Israel had just been in a famine period of at least ten years. Because that's the length of time that... Uh, Elimelech and Naomi and their sons and their daughters-in-law were in Moab waiting for the famine to lift in, in Israel. So this famine has been a lengthy famine in Israel, and yet the temptation for Boaz would be, wow, this is our first crop since God's broken the famine. Head back through that field a second time, a third time, a fourth time. We can't afford to leave anything behind. It's been a long time since we've been able to put any grain in the storehouse. And yet he doesn't. He honors the law of God, even with the margins being as fine as they are, honors the law of God related to uh, harvesting and providing for those that were in need. And uh, so what, when we look at this whole situation that's going to happen with uh, Ruth and you probably know the end of the story. They're going to get married. Hate to ruin that for you. We could have made it like a BBC movie and you don't know what's going to happen until the end. But uh, they're going to end up getting married. The interesting thing is, is their lives would have never come together if Boaz hadn't been obedient. There would have never been a getting to know one another, never been a marriage, there never would have been a child, there never would have been a King David of that lineage, there never would have been a Jesus of that lineage. It all happens because he was to a detail obedient to the Word of God. I think for us as Christians we have no hope of ever experiencing the fullness of God's will for our life if we live partially obedient lives. If he had lived a partially obedient life, none of this is going to unfold. One of the ways that God directs us in his will and his purpose for our lives is by having us obey him when it costs us something to obey him. And he directs us in life through our obedience. And so it was a good thing that he obeyed or this entire uh, plan would have been, you know, destroyed by his disobedience. And, and so Boaz then approached Ruth 
and uh, comes to her and begins to interact with her. And he said, you will listen, my daughter. And this lets us know that there's a considerable age difference between Ruth and Boaz. He is, without a doubt, old enough to be her father. And so, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Don't glean in another field, or, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. You just follow right behind them and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men, that is kind of his employees, uh, have, have drawn. And so normally the, the gleaners would wait until the uh, reapers had already gone through a field and were on their way to the next field. And Boaz comes to Ruth and says, no, I want you to stay closer than that. And he's looking out for her physical safety. And he also spoke to the men that were a part of his work crew. Remember, it's a very low time morally in Israel at that time. And he makes sure that nobody's going to do anything inappropriate or say anything inappropriate around her or in front of her. So he makes these arrangements for her safety and he assures her uh, of, of her safety that she'll be protected if she stays in the field and stays uh, close to her worker, uh, his workers. Also providing water for her. I don't know how many of you have done agricultural work. I did a, uh, a little bit of it when I was in high school and uh, uh, that's hot work because it it gets done in August, it gets done in September, it's hot. And when you've got to lug your own water around, it's just one more thing you've got to tote from wherever to the workplace and then all the way through the fields and got to have it hanging somewhere and all that. So when he says, listen, you don't need to worry about bringing your water every day. Uh, you just go and you get water where all of my people are getting water. It's really very, very generous uh, of him there. And so she fell on her face. Ooh, that must have hurt. Now, she, she bowed down and just speaks of her humility and uh, bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? She's very humbled by how kind he's being that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. So she's, I mean, she's, she's a Moabite in Israel. If you've ever been a foreigner in a foreign land, well, you would be then, wouldn't you? But I mean, if you're a foreigner in, in some other land, I mean, you feel very, very vulnerable. And when somebody looks out for you, that's a big deal. And so she's really impacted uh, by his care for her. And Boaz answered and said to her, here's the reason. It has been fully reported to me. I mean, the word is out concerning your reputation and all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. And then he says, may the Lord repay your work, the good that you've done to Naomi and the sacrifice that you've made, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So he prays a blessing over her. What he doesn't realize at that moment in time is that God's going to use him to fulfill his prayer. God does that kind of stuff. It's wonderful. And then he said, and then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And so you're treating me, I'm, I'm just a, a, 
you know, kind of poverty-stricken gleaner out here, and you're treating me like a part of your workforce. And now Boaz said to her at mealtime, so here you've got um, where you've got the boss, and he's got his employees, and then you've got the gleaners over here. The gleaners didn't head over and eat the lunch that the boss provided for his workers. And uh, so here's, they, they eat over here, the gleaners eat over here, if they can eat anything at all. So they break for lunch, and Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Now in the Hebrew, this word vinegar, it literally means kind of a concoction that is like vinegar and oil, just like you go into a fancy schmancy restaurant and they got, not even so fancy schmancy, and they've got the olive oil and the vinaigrette there, the balsamic vinegar, and so that's what was uh, given to kind of moisten the bread. Come and eat of the bread, dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and, and kept some back. This is the Ruth diet right here. Eat until your hunger is satisfied and then stop. I didn't see that in any of the commentaries, but it is interesting to note. So she, she ate until she was satisfied. Then she kept some back. She's going to bring it home to Naomi, as we'll see, um, hopefully this week. And when she came, she rose up to glean. Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and don't reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her, handfuls on purpose, Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she's obviously kind of a rookie at this whole gleaning thing. And so Boaz looks and says, you know, she's going to make some mistakes and she's going to, you could only glean fields that they had already harvested. He said if she starts to wander into the fields that haven't been harvested yet and starts yanking off grain, he says, don't, ha- don't yell at her over that. You let her do that. And in fact, I want you to drop handfuls of, of grain so she can look at it and, and pick it up and, and be sustained. And so she gleaned in the field until evening, beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Twenty-seven pounds of barley. That was enough for, I mean, for several days for her and Naomi uh, to eat. That was just a, a tremendous amount of, for one day's work. And then she took it up, she went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and so she brought it out and she gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied at lunch, so she gave her the other half of the sandwich. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. She says, it doesn't happen every day, 27 pounds. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be the Lord. First prayer of Naomi in the entire book. She starts to see God's fingerprints and she still got it in her. She never stopped believing in God. Never stopped believing in God at all. What she doubted was God's goodness. And so she starts to see His goodness again. It was there all along. But sometimes you can't see it at the moment. So she cries out and said, Blessed be He uh, of the Lord who has not forsaken His kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours. He is one of our 
close relatives. And that word close relatives in the New King James, um, in the Old King James, it's translated kinsman, redeemer, which I like better. In the Hebrew, it is the word goel. And so uh, here we um, have the introduction of, again, Boaz, introduced in the passage as being a goel or a kinsman redeemer to Naomi and to Ruth. The word goel, the Hebrew word, it means to redeem. And what a goel was under that covenant was your nearest blood relative. That was your kinsman redeemer. And under the law of Moses, this goel or this kinsman redeemer had several very unique responsibilities to the family and, and among them are two that have to do with our story here. One of the things that was important for a goel or a kinsman redeemer to do in his family was to guarantee the continuation of the family name of a man who had died in the family. So here you've got a man, a young man. He marries a bride and then something tragic happens and he dies before she bears a son to carry on uh, the family name. And so the name of that, that man would be extinguished in the history of Israel. It was very important to the Jews that their name in Jewish history, which they considered to be the most important history in the world, and indeed it is, they did not want their name to be lost in history. They wanted that name in play. I mean, who knew whether there might be their bloodline that the Messiah is brought into the world uh, through that bloodline. So it was very, very important uh, to them. And so if the brother died without an, an, an heir for, with, with his wife, then the nearest blood relative, male blood relative, that was eligible would then marry the widow and, and uh, then they would re- work well, you, they'd work at it till they got a son out of the whole thing, and then the son would be named after uh, the dead father. So, in doing that, his fa- the, the brother, dead brother's name would not be lost in Jewish history. The widow would now have a son to take care of her in the old age, and and so it was. Uh, it, 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 that that's what one of the responsibilities of a goel was a second responsibility and and what was interesting is is if the guy that died didn't have a brother that was eligible to raise up a son then whoever the nearest blood relative was that was eligible then then he would become the goel or the kinsman redeemer likewise if a family member fell on hard times like elimelech did financially and they had to uh, sell their land to a stranger or someone outside of the family, the goel or the kinsman redeemer could step in and say, hey, I heard that Elimelech sold his land uh, to you for such and such a price uh, because they've hit hard times. We don't want the kinsman redeemer, the nearest blood relative, could then go to that person and say, we do not want that land to leave the family. And so I'm here to pay the price to bring that land back into the family so it wouldn't be lost uh, in, uh, for that family. And so here Naomi recognizes uh, the, 
potential significance of this development of Boaz now uh, recognizing and, and getting introduced to uh, Ruth. She believes Boaz to be the closest blood relative to Malon, uh, the deceased husband of Ruth, and so he would be the one that would naturally marry Ruth, raise up a son to carry on the name of Malone. He would also be the one, and, and having significant wealth, the one who would then redeem the land that her husband Elimelech had, had uh, sold to somebody else outside of the family. And so Naomi is very excited because uh, Boaz possesses the blood relationship and the wealth to accomplish both of these things, which were and are a big uh, deal uh, to her. And so uh, she informs that uh, Boaz is, is one of our close relatives, and Ruth the Moabite, is verse 21, said, uh, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women. You stay with them. Safety issues, again, a very shady time in Jewish history, and that people do not meet you in any other field. And so she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest, and uh, then she continued on through the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So she continued with Boaz's uh, work crew for several weeks, but now they get toward the end of the summer, and uh, these two widows are facing a very real problem. And the real problem that they're facing is, great, we've got food uh, to eat, but it's only because you're gleaning. But they don't harvest fields uh, four seasons a year around here. And so this is going to dry up, and so what are we going to do in terms of, of a long-term solution to uh, our, our particular circumstance? And so that's what uh, Ruth, uh, Naomi is looking at, and she now seeks a long-term security for uh, Ruth through Boaz, the kinsman redeemer here in chapter 3. And then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now security for a woman in that ancient world was having a husband and having a home. So that's what she's going to look for. This is a man who looks like he has a responsibility to marry you and he also is financially secure enough to provide you with a home. And so this is what she's thinking, and then this is her plan. Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our kinsman redeemer, our relative? And in fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor was a, a stone kind of surface, that would be located in any kind of an agricultural area in Israel. It would be elevated. And then when the evening would come and the winds would be blowing, they would take uh, the chaff and the wheat. They would, they would grind down until uh, the, the chaff was separated from the wheat and then throw it up into the air and the chaff would blow away and the wheat would be left. And that's, that's what they would do. Now, in those days, a threshing floor in a, a city like Bethlehem that was like a co-op. Nobody was so wealthy that they owned a threshing floor for themselves very often, or if they did, they would 
share it with other farmers. And so here is a situation where Boaz uh, kind of has gotten on the schedule to use the threshing floor for that night, and apparently the schedule was well known, and so she knows that he's going to be there, and he's going to be doing the final acts of, of bringing in this, this harvest of, of, of barley. So he'll be there tonight at the threshing floor, and of course, to bring in the harvest, separate the chaff from the wheat, be left with the kernel of, of the wheat, put it into bags or into containers. I mean, this was just... a this was just the greatest. God, you're too much. Look at how you've provided for us. Isn't he amazing? And so there'd always be a great celebration and praise of God uh, involved in it and probably a pretty good meal involved too. So she said, you know, that's going to be happening tonight and therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself. You know, kind of get, put your best foot forward and uh, we're going to see that she had a best foot to put forward in just a moment and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. So go there. But while they're doing the threshing and, and, the, the, and, all, uh, and, and bagging it and doing all of that, don't, don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking and celebrating. And then it shall be when he lies down. I mean, she knows men. I'm telling you, this Naomi, God bless her. So he's going to eat, he's going to drink, then he'll want to sleep. Remember, there's no football in those days, so they couldn't really do that. If you know, I've used football a little bit in recent sermons, because it's getting close now, isn't it? It's not that I don't like baseball, but I don't like baseball, so I'm always eager for, for football to come. And so when it shall be, now my son-in-law loves baseball, so it keeps me humble in that well. Okay, so he's going to lie down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and then you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he'll tell you what you should do. Now, this is really, like, weird to us. So he's going to lie down, he's going to go to sleep, you go down at the base of his feet and take his blanket and put it over you. Absolutely pure, absolutely innocent in that culture, no anything uh, bad about it at all. Essentially, what she's doing is she is letting Boaz know in no uncertain terms that she is interested in being married to him. It's almost like a proposal of marriage. Some, some pe- people may think, you know, it's against the Bible for a woman to propose to a man. I don't know, it's happening right here. I don't recommend it. But I mean, there does seem to be some liberty here on this. So this is what she's doing. She, he's an older man. He doesn't think, as we're going to see in just a moment, that she would be interested in someone like him and the whole deal and all. So she's going to make it clear. I am interested in being married to you. Now, we talked about English movies. You ever watch these Dickens movies or whatever these things? I'm talking about clean movies now. But where these English people don't talk to one another about what they feel for each other? I'm alone. I'm all alone in a room. Lord, help me. Anybody watched any of these movies? Does it drive you crazy? Would you tell her you love her? Would you tell him you love him? So we can... But then there would be no British movies, would there? The whole thing is, why don't these people talk? He gets on the bus and he drives away. She gets in a taxi. She goes in the other direction. They never see one another again. They're head over heels in love with one another. Would somebody talk in this movie? Now, the Hebrews, they had it down. So this is known as good communication. 
There's no way Boaz, not even a man, can miss this communication by a woman to him. And she said to Naomi, all that I say to you, I will do. You know the culture, I don't, I'll do it, I trust you. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and he would have stayed there all night to protect his grain from thieves. And so he, he makes kind of a mattress and pillow out of, out of the heaps of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight. That the man woke up, there's a woman at my feet. He was startled. You know how you wake up in the middle of the night and you're trying to catch up with what's going on around you? This isn't happening. I don't, where am I? So he startled and he turned uh, himself and, he, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? Now remember, there's no street lights. He couldn't reach over and turn on a lamp, anything like that. It's very dark. So he doesn't know who this woman is. Identify yourself. And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. And then, this is again great clarity, take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close uh, relative. And so she is requesting that he would marry her. And then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. He's happy. He's very flattered <laughs> by this. So, he, so he's... he's he, he praises the Lord for this. And so he said, You have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And so he's in essence saying, Listen, I know you, have, you would have no shortage of suitors your own age uh, out looking to marry you. I mean, why not? This hard worker and she eats like a bird. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. <laughs> no, she's probably a very attractive woman and hardworking. And he's like a bird. <laughs> and now, my daughter, do not fear. Again, the daughter, the daughter, he recognizes the age different. Don't be afraid. For I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you're a virtuous woman. This is what's important to Boaz. This is, is her character, and everyone knows it. Now he says, it is true, there's a complication. It is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Oh, her heart must have sunk upon hearing that. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, then good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you to marry you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. So he's, he wants to do it, but he only wants it in God's will, wants to marry her. He said, lie down until the morning. So he's not striving. There's nothing about... The, the potential of this that makes him say, okay, now let's see, how can we figure this thing out and we can do this and all and, and uh, then the, the near kinsman, the nearest kinsman won't and this and all. He completely faith in God. He doesn't want, even as wonderful as this is in his heart, he doesn't want anything to do with it unless God is in it. And so he gives God room to work in the situation. So she stays the rest of the night 
And one of the reasons that that would be the case is that it's midnight when this conversation occurs. The only women out on the roads in the middle of the night, even in those days, would have been prostitutes. So she would have been in danger if he said, you know, get out of here right now, you know, and, and head back for home after the conversation. And, and so he didn't want to jeopardize her safety. He's looking after her. But at the same time, he is concerned over the fact that if she leaves once the sun has gone up, then people would recognize her. The gossips and the slanders would come to wrong conclusions and maybe harm her reputation. And so she will end up leaving before the sun comes up. So great wisdom here and a great uh, concern of a man for the reputation of the woman that he's uh, wanting to, to marry. And so she lay down at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another and light enough to, to see and get home but, but not to recognize the face of a person. And then he said, do not let it be known that uh, the woman came to the threshing floor. And also he said to her, bring a shawl that is on you and hold it. So she holds this shawl out as kind of a container and when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Sixty pounds of barley grain. Enough for Naomi and Ruth to eat for uh, two plus weeks. Again, she's got to be a strong gal, 60 pounds, to take that uh, all the way home. And then she went back into the city. And she came to her mother-in-law and, and Naomi said, Is that you, my daughter? She probably hardly slept a wink all night. And then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. He knew that... <laughs> Uh, he knew that Naomi was behind all of this because culturally Ruth wouldn't have been able to come uh, up with it. And then she said, uh, Naomi said to Ruth, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. You got this man's word, man of character, you got 60 pounds of grain, as evidence, this guy is not going to rest until he saw. You won't wait days for his answer. He'll take care of this today. Again, she, uh, she knew people pretty well. Now, Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. And uh, the gate of the city was a place where that uh, uh, was the uh, entrance. The, a walled city would have a, a main entrance into it. And it was where all of the kind of elders or the leaders of a city would, would sit. In those days, it would be all men. And uh, so it was a place where you could bring, uh, do a business transaction if you needed witnesses to witness the transaction because not everybody could read and write and they didn't have paper to sign contracts and all of that. And so your contract paper was your witnesses. Or maybe you had a, a dispute with a neighbor over something. You would come to these elders that were sitting at the gates who would then biblically address the dispute. And so uh, that's, that's where these kind of people were sitting. And so that's why Boaz went to that place. It was where you, uh, you know, transacted business, the kind of business that he was wanting to transact. And so behold, the close relative whom Boaz had spoken of he came by, the closest, nearest relative to Ruth. And so Boaz said, Come aside, friend, 
Come aside, competition, that's not his heart. He, it's, it, again, he's, he's trusting in the Lord, doesn't want to destroy any relationships over this. Come aside, friend, and sit down here. And so uh, this man comes alongside at him, and he, and he sat down. And then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said to them, sit down here, and so they sat down. So everybody realizes, all right, some kind of a legal transaction is, is going to take place here, something that's going, of, of such significance that he wants ten witnesses uh, to it. And then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of, country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So the land's gone out of the family. And I thought to inform you, saying, because you're the nearest blood relative, to go ahead and buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you redeem that land, you buy it. If you want to do it, then you redeem it. But if you won't redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you as the nearest kinsman. And the man said, I'll redeem it. It's cheap land. So what businessman that knows anything would say no to very inexpensive land to be bought back into the family. And so he, he uh, uh, takes the, the opportunity to buy the land. And then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field, since we're talking law of Moses here, on the day that you buy the field in line with the law of Moses from the hand of, of Naomi, you must also uh, buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, Malone, which was a blood relative of them. You need to marry her uh, and in order to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And so... Uh, he, he said, all right, you want the land, but you've got to understand the full responsibility of a Goel, a kinsman redeemer, is then to also marry Ruth. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. So he looked at this and whatever it was about his personal life or, or his, he said, this will um, complicate my current uh, financial status. So he said, I would have wanted the land, but I'm not interested in marrying someone, raising up a, a, a child in that relationship. Then the land and the name and everything goes to that child. He just simply didn't want to invest uh, in it. He's not in love with Ruth, and Boaz is. And so he said, I'm not interested in it. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so he gives permission to Boaz to go ahead and be the one that does it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. So concerning that whole law of the kinsman redeemer for raising up a son to a dead relative, let's say you were eligible to marry your widowed uh, sister-in-law and you said, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. There was a way out. You could refuse to do it. But she, could, she would then come and the, guy, the blood relative that refused to raise a son to her would hand his sandal to her and then she would spit in his face, according to the law of Moses. Because what he, has, he had done in doing that was 
uh, that was an insult to her and an insult to the family. So she was able to publicly insult him in this way. By this point in time in Israel's history, they've, they've kind of uh, ignoring the, the spitting side of things and they're just exchanging the sandal at this point. But when a person refused, had a, a greater concern for their finances or a greater concern for this or that than for the health and the wear, welfare and the longevity of the family in Jewish history, then uh, you care, that would carry a stigma for the rest of your life. You were the man... Uh, who loosed his sandal, and that was an insulting thing that, to be known for in those days. And so this is the transaction that occurred there publicly, a toned-down version of the law of Moses. And therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and so he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all of the people that were gathered there, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. And moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. In other words, the contract is signed now. And the Lord, they then declared to Boaz, the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the wives of of Jacob who gave birth to most of the, the men, sons that became the twelve tribes of Israel and the two who built, uh, the two who built the house of Israel and may you prosper in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. And so these guys just spontaneously, these witnesses, uh, they say, not only do we witness this contract that's uh, occurring here, but man, we do it and you've got our blessing. And so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the woman, women, uh, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And so the women are just, uh, you know, blessing uh, Naomi here for the great things that have now happened in her life. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Uh, in other words, not only to take care of Ruth, but to take care of you. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has born him. And so Naomi took the child laid him on her bosom. She did not become a wet nurse. People say that sometimes, but that's probably not the case. She just had a, she had a great privilege of having a very dear, close uh, relationship as a grandmother to this grandson, and she became a nurse uh, to him. And so here's Naomi that just weeks earlier, she thinks that God is against her and, you know, everything is terrible and, and don't call me pleasantness, call me bitter and all. And yet, if she gave it just 
gave it enough time, if we give God enough time, and that may be this life, and then we see it in the next, uh, we'll see that God was working it together for good all along. God loves us. God is for us. He has a great heart toward, toward us. He's eager to bless us. And um, sometimes um, one of the reasons that it can take him a little while is, is he's got to develop our character uh, to be able to handle those blessings. Or he's doing some other thing in our lives that we can't quite see at the moment. And um, so he is, typically he's blessing us as much as our, our character can, can handle. And then also within, within his will for he, what he knows is coming next related to our lives. And also, um, we're told in verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, this is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And so the name of the boy was uh, uh, called Worshipper, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this is the genealogy of uh, Perez. So we get the genealogy of this, this boy, uh, Obed, and a uh, few generations before him coming on the scene, and then two or three generations after him. This is the genealogy of Perez, Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz. So here's a name now we recognize, right? Boaz then begot his son Obed. Obed then would give birth to a man by the name of Jesse, who would then give birth to eight sons, one of them by the name of David, who would become the greatest king in the history of Israel. And then fast forward a thousand years from the time of David in that same city of Bethlehem to another birth born in this same lineage. Jesus was born in this whole lineage. Jesus' physical lineage born into this world uh, came as a result of this union between Boaz and uh, Ruth. And so, you know, just really an amazing thing when, you, uh, when you, you look at what, you know, Naomi is just thinking everything is all against her and all, and little does she realize that she's going to have a grandson, she's going to have in her bloodline uh, kings of Israel, and not only that, but coming from her bloodline, uh, in, in this kinsman-redeemer angle of things that uh, she is going to also have the, uh, the birth of, of the Savior. There's a few lessons here I want to close with uh, before we partake of communion. One lesson of the book of, of Ruth is, is the fact that uh, while life in this world can be very, very difficult, and it is a fallen world and life can be difficult, but God, and I think it's important for us as Christians to recognize that. So often we're shocked. It's like we don't know the Bible and we don't know that the world is a fallen world. It doesn't mean the world doesn't hurt us. It doesn't mean that the fallenness of the world doesn't, uh, isn't painful for us to process. But we do have to be careful about our expectations that everything is going to go perfectly. It's not going to go perfectly. One day in heaven it will go perfectly, but not, not at this point in time. So life can be difficult in this fallen world, but God does promise to work all things together for good. 
in the lives of His people. And that is a promise that He will never fail to keep, not in any of our lives. And this book is a testimony of that fact to even Naomi and the greatness of her loss. I think another lesson of this book that's very important is that a God-honoring life can be joyfully lived even in the darkest of times morally and spiritually in the world. We see Boaz doing that. I mean, everybody's just doing what? I mean, it's just crazy. And yet this guy walks with God in the middle of it. And I tell you, I don't think you could uh, give him 50 cents and a bullfrog to get him to walk away from the Lord on things. He's thrilled to walk with God in the midst of, of the darkness. I think the book also teaches us that our lives of simple obedience to God, they are making a difference in human history. God isn't wasting our obedience to Him. But we have to remember that we may not see the fruit of our obedience to God in our generation. The fruit of our obedience may be one, two, three generations down the road. And then I think while all of, there's all of these other wonderful lessons found in the book of Ruth, perhaps the single greatest lesson of the book has to do with this thing called redemption. The various forms of the Hebrew words for redeem or redeemer or redemption or kinsman redeemer, those words are used 20 times in this book. You say, what's the big deal, 20 times? It would be, a, it would be maybe a small thing if we were looking at the book of Genesis. But the book of Ruth has only 85 verses. So 20 times God is talking about this subject called redemption. And the word redeem, the Hebrew word means to buy or it means to set free upon the payment of a ransom. And in this book of Ruth, we have a beautiful picture or a type of Jesus. And in the book, Boaz is a picture of Jesus and Ruth is a beautiful picture of uh, the church. And in this book, just as Boaz was able to redeem Elimelech's land and Ruth because he possessed four requirements of a kinsman redeemer, so too Jesus was able to accomplish an even greater redemption of not a piece of land, but the whole world, and not making a bride of a single Gentile woman, but a bride of as many in the world in human history that would look to him in faith, because he too possessed the same four requirements of the kinsman redeemer. What are those requirements? Number one, the kinsman redeemer had to be a near kinsman. He had to be related by blood. Boaz was able to redeem the land sold by the deceased uh, family of, Ru uh, of Ruth because he was a blood relative. Jesus was able to redeem this world and to save us, provide salvation for mankind because he made himself a blood relative. We're related to him by blood. He was all God, all man, all at the same time. Sometimes people look and say, why was it necessary for the Savior of the world, a pure, spotless, unblemished sacrifice, why was it necessary 
for Jesus to be born into the world. And the, one of the reasons it was, it was necessary was deity can't die. He had to take on human flesh to die for our sins. But another reason is in order to fulfill the Old Testament picture of the kinsman redeemer, he had to become our blood relative in order to redeem us and to redeem the world. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. He said, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The second mark of a kinsman redeemer is that he had to be free himself. And so Boaz was able to redeem Elimelech's land and thus to redeem Ruth because he wasn't in debt himself. In the same way, Jesus possessed a wealth that was greater than the ones that he came to redeem had in terms of debt. Jesus was free from the curse or the debt of sin. And because he was free of the debt of sin, he was able then to pay free sinners from their debt to sin. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, as we quoted this morning, that is the Father, made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin. It was significant. Jesus could not be a sinner and be a kinsman redeemer. He could not be a sinner and save sinners. He had to be free of that debt. And he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Number three, the kinsman redeemer had to perform his work of redemption willingly. The nearest kinsman in the story of Ruth, he wasn't willing to redeem uh, both Ruth and the land. Boaz was willing to redeem them both. And he also was willing to redeem at any price. And this is the same thing that is true of Jesus in terms of redeeming the world and redeeming sinful man. Jesus said, no man takes my life. He said, I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it again. Elsewhere he said, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay his life down for his friend. Jesus performed his work as kinsman redeemer willingly. And then finally, the kinsman redeemer had to have the price of redemption. Boaz possessed a wealth that was greater than the debt of the one that he wanted to redeem. He had a wealth that was greater than Ruth's debt and the debt of her family. The Bible teaches that Jesus alone possesses a wealth that is great enough to overwhelm our debt to sin and to death and to hell, and to the devil. Peter put it this way, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. So if the men will come forward, we will serve communion tonight. The worship team will come forward and lead us in worship and we'll spend some time just meditating upon our great kinsman redeemer and how he was unique in human history in his qualifications to provide you and I with salvation.